Please take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 18. We kicked off our sermon series three weeks ago called uh, Misquoted. Uh, Today is our fourth part in our series, and we have learned that theology, our theology, fuels our doxology. Can you remember what that means? In other words, what we believe about God, our theology, fuels our worship, our doxology. And what we believe about God needs to be informed from the Scriptures, isn't it? We need to be learning about God from the Holy Scriptures themselves, not from external sources. And that's why it's so important for us to be rightly handling the Word of God so that we would be approved workers unashamed. And what we have learned so far is that the three most important rules in Bible study are context, context, and context, okay? When we ignore the context in which a passage of the Bible is written, we can easily make it say something that it's not saying. One of the simplest and most important things that we should do when reading the Bible is to look at its original context, look at its historical context, look at the the literary context and the personal context as well. Um, David Platt, one of my favorite um, teachers, I like what he said about Bible study. He said, our goal in Bible study is not to determine our personal meaning of a verse. Our goal is to discover what the Holy Spirit meant when He gave us this chapter. Today we're looking at a verse that is very popularly misquoted, chapter 18, Matthew 18, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So today we want to see what the Holy Spirit meant when He wrote those words. We don't want to put our interpretation into that verse. We want to find out exactly what the Scriptures mean in that passage. So if you would stand with me, please, out of respect for God's Word, we will read from verse 15 to verse 20 in Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Lord, we pray for your help this morning as we unpack these verses. We pray that you would help us and teach us. We pray that your Spirit would give us wisdom. We ask, Lord, that you would help me to expound this passage faithfully, Lord, and that um, you would be honored and glorified in our understanding of this passage and in our response as well. So we ask for your help today. We ask that you would be glorified, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
When people get misquoted in the media, um, it's common for these celebrities to, to say something to this effect. Well, I was taken out of context. That's not actually what I said. And then they would try to give an explanation of what they said in, in the context. Now, I found a particular example I wanted to share with you. I won't mention who it was. But one news reporter, he was interviewing this particular celebrity. And he said, can you confirm, well, this was a politician, can you confirm the rumor of mass layoffs in the next quarter? And then the, the politician responded and said, well, there's no truth to the rumor that there will be mass layoffs in the next quarter. And then a couple of days later in the newspaper, this is how they quoted this person. There will be mass layoffs in the next quarter. Taken completely out of context, twisting the words around to mean something that wasn't originally said. Or it was said, but in a different way. And I think it's easy to take things out of context in our culture, especially with the social media that we are so attached to, looking at little snippets of what people say and all these memes. It's difficult, really, to understand the context. But here, in Matthew 18, we have God's Word that can be taken out of context and does get taken out of context in, in many different ways. And how much more difficult and how much more important it is for us to be making sure that we understand what God's Word is saying. And this verse is one of those verses, popular verses, that are misquoted. And maybe you've heard it in the environment of a, of a prayer meeting. Maybe there's some small church home groups or even cell groups that are meeting um, at home. Where two or more are gathered is most commonly quoted to give legitimacy to these small gatherings. Where people say, well, the Lord is with us. Let's pray. Just two or three are gathered. The Lord is going to be with us. And maybe you've heard people even pray like that. And this interpretation is, is used to assure people that Jesus' presence is still there despite, despite the, the small amount of people that are there. I mean, it sounds nice, but when you start to actually think about that and that explanation, it quickly falls apart. You know, if God is only present when two or three are gathered, what about when we pray alone? Is God not present when we pray alone? Or what about where four or more are gathered? Is God not present then? If there was only one person present, God would, would not be there. Well, I hope, I hope you don't believe that. That's not, that's not what the Bible teaches. But when we twist this passage this way, that's what it implies. And most people that use Matthew 18 verse 20, they don't mean any harm. But when we ignore the context, we can unintentionally cause confusion, and we can cause harm. And this verse is not talking about God's presence at small gatherings. And to be clear, I do believe God is present in small gatherings. I'm not saying that He's not. But however, this is not at all what Matthew 18 is talking about. And when we use this verse out of context, we can inadvertently imply things that we don't mean. And not only that, but we also miss out on the incredible, practical, true meaning of this passage in verse 20. So let's look at the context of Matthew 18, 
verse 20, and see how it actually applies to our lives. My first point this morning is the promise of protection. And we can look at the context reading the verses before in verse 15 to verse 17. Here in verse 15, Jesus is explaining to his disciples how to, how to handle disputes among church members. And let's take a look in what is said before in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So as I mentioned, before we look at the immediate context, let's first look at the historical context of Matthew. I believe when I was reading this week, I discovered many scholars believe that the goal of Matthew writing this gospel was to present Jesus as the, the new Moses. Matthew writes to a Jewish people, to a Jewish mindset. And he teaches in chapter 28, verse 18, that all authority belongs to, to Jesus. He teaches in chapter 5, verse 17, that, that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law. He teaches in chapter 16, verse 19, that Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom of heaven as a result of Peter's confession of Christ. And now our present passage here reveals that Jesus is now transferring this authority to his disciples, to the church, the church that is made up of Jews as well as Gentiles. So Matthew's original audience, they would have very likely known immediately that this passage was about church discipline. Jesus is giving instructions about how to handle conflicts in the church. And we see in verse 15, this verse starts with step number one. There are four steps here, and we won't go through them very detailed today. Um, some of you are familiar with this, but we see the first step is private correction. Private correction. When, when a brother or, or a sister is caught in a sin, what do we do? We go and gossip about it, right? No, we don't. We go and tell the person their fault to them, straight, straight talking. Don't go and talk to others about it behind their backs. According to Ephesians chapter 4, you should not talk to other people about your brother or sister in a way that doesn't, that doesn't build them up, that doesn't build their character. So gossip kills proper church discipline. Gossip destroys. We are to go and talk to that individual and keep this discussion between the two of you. In verse 16, we see step two. If step one doesn't work, we have to move on to step two. If the person confronted privately is still unrepentant, they're still continuing in their sin, then we are to take two or more others along with us, one or two witnesses. Look at verse 16 there in your Bibles. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
Now, this language used here, Jesus has taken from the Old Testament. Remember, his audience is mostly Jewish. They would have understood what Jesus was referring to here. And Jesus did this because he wanted them to see from the Old Testament the same principle in the New Testament. And this passage would have reminded them of Deuteronomy chapter 19. Turn there with me in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 19. It's important for me to, to show you this verse. Deuteronomy chapter 19. You can put a cross-reference if you want in verse 16 in Matthew 18. But there, Deuteronomy chapter 19, in verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Look at verse 16. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office these days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. This was the law that was written in the Old Testament for ways for them to resolve these disputes. And Deuteronomy 19 says that two or three witnesses must agree in order to bring a legally binding charge against somebody else, against that person. And by using this passage, Jesus is now putting this old principle to a new and practical work in the, in the New Testament, in the church. These two or three who agree are now legally bound to one another from the standpoint of God's kingdom, okay? These people are covenanted together, as we sometimes say. And Jesus takes this phrase from Deuteronomy 19, which in context is meant to protect people against false accusations, to protect them from people speaking what is, is not true. So these two or three witnesses... They need to be able to confirm that indeed this is a serious offense and it is, it is a public outward offense and, and the offender is indeed unrepentant. He has not repented of his sins. And hopefully involving other people that will bring the offender to his senses or it will help the offended see that they should not be so offended. So they were mediators in a sense. They were mediators, in a sense, to make sure that this really was a sin worth um, calling the person to repentance, or whether it was just some ill feelings towards other people. They were, they were mediators between these two parties. But now we, get to verse, now we get to step three. Look at verse 17. If the person refuses, in light of these witnesses, if this still hasn't worked, and this person is still in unrepentant sin, then we need to move to step three, which is church admonition. And Jesus says, tell it to the church in verse 17. So why? Why tell it to the whole gathering? That can seem in some senses cruel to um, some people. And the 
point of telling it to the church is so that the whole body of believers will, will run after that unrepentant believer. It's not that they can talk behind their backs like the whole church now against this one person. The whole church is now for this one person, going after this one person. They're going to call this person to repentance. We love you. We care for you. We want you to come back to the Lord. That's this point of admonition here, church admonition. This is God setting up a way for the, for the entire body, His people, to get this individual back and to love them um, correctly without causing this person to fall into more serious sin. So this is an act of, it's an act of grace, it's an act of mercy, it's an act of love. It's church admonition here, okay? The, the whole purpose of church discipline is restoration. It's not about revenge, it is about restoration. But if this doesn't work, still after step three, this person is not willing to see their sin for what it really is. This person is still not willing to repent. Then step four comes into play. And we see that also in verse 17. The person continues. Then Jesus says, we are to treat this person like a Gentile and a tax collector. How do we treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Well, they are un in, in the Bible, it's a picture of an unbeliever, okay? And how do we treat unbelievers? Well, we hate unbelievers, isn't it? We don't want unbelievers to come to church, right? No, okay? We evangelize unbelievers. We love unbelievers. We share the gospel with unbelievers. He's no longer treated as a member of the body of Christ. We see them as somebody who needs the gospel. We don't share communion with this person as an unbeliever. We don't invite them into the membership of the church. We help them to see that they are unbelievers in need of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This person is put out of the church. They are excommunicated so that they would be able to understand that they are indeed without Christ and in need of a Savior. This final step May, say, may sound unloving to some, but it actually shows grace and concern for, for godliness. We are to take this final step also for the purity of the church. We are to take this step for the salvation of this individual. And we are to take this step for the glory of God. And later today at our members meeting, we as a church will be dealing with a, a church discipline issue. And the step that we will be invo invoking will be step number four. We will be excommunicating an unrepentant sinner. Not so that we can be unkind to them, but so that they can understand that they are in need of a Savior who needs to be born again. So looking at the context so far, it's fairly clear that Matthew 18 verse 20 is teaching us how to handle church discipline. Okay? And so far, we have not seen any teaching about God's presence in, the, in our gatherings, small gatherings or, or big gatherings. Jesus isn't teaching about hearing our, our prayers in, in small groups. So maybe, so maybe you're asking then, what does verse 20 mean when it says where two or more are gathered in my name? 
Well, that's what we're going to look at at my second point. We're going to look at the meaning, the promise of power. We're going to see in verse 18 to verse 19. Now, if you're like me, this four-step process can feel a little intimidating. Um, and, and knowing this, Jesus gives us a promise when we, when we choose to obey Him. When we choose to obey Him. And this is the promise of His power. Okay, When we pursue biblical peacemaking by following these, these steps... Verse 18 and 19 tells us that what is done here on earth is declared to be so in, in heaven. We, we have the stamp of His approval and the promise of His power. Look at verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, if two of you agree on heaven about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So let me read that again. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now first notice there that two or three are the witnesses that we read about in verse 16. Okay, And now in verse 19 again. And this is not the first time that that Matthew has used this phrase. We see it comes from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 19, but it's not the first time that it's been used in the Gospel of Matthew. Turn with me a few pages back to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, the same phrase is used here. Look at verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am, Jesus speaking? And Simon Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the same language here. Jesus is saying to, to Peter, the apostle, he is saying, on this bedrock, on this foundation, Peter, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus did not say, to Peter, on you, Peter, I will build my church. That's how the Catholic Church interprets that verse. That's not what the verse is saying. The verse is saying, based on this bedrock, based on your testimony of the gospel. If you look at the context, Peter had just shared his confession of faith. He had just shared his testimony. And based on that testimony, based on the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Jesus would build his church. I will build my church. This bedrock, this foundation is the testimony of the gospel which Jesus has spoken. Any person wanting to join the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has to have a foundation of the gospel, has to have a testimony of the gospel in their own lives. The church is not just a social club. The church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ who came to this earth 
to give his, li- his life as a ransom for us. The church is made up of believers, those who testify of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But verse 19, he says, I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is authority that Jesus himself gives to Peter here in chapter 16. And he transfers this authority in chapter 18 to the church. First, it's given to, to Peter and the apostles in, verse, in chapter 16. And now in chapter 18, it's given to the church, the church corporately. Now, the local church has been given the authority to speak in Jesus' name. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. You is the church. And the church, as I said, is made up of people who have affirmed the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have affirmed the soundness and the genuineness of each other's allegiance to Christ. The church that has covenanted with each other. The church that recognizes one another as as members of one body. You, church, you together now have authority to speak for me regarding the what and the who of the gospel. Both what the gospel is and who is rightly confessing it. That's the key. That's the keys of the kingdom. The church is acting like like an embassy. They represent Jesus here on this earth. And Jesus has established local churches to declare some of his heavenly judgments now. And the judgments I'm talking about are connected to the keys. Keys are used for for two things, locking doors and, and opening doors, aren't they? And in the context of Matthew 18, we can see these keys being used in church discipline, in, in closing the door. The church has the authority to make these provisional judgments concerning what is a right confession of the gospel and what is a wrong confession and who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, churches possess the authority to bind and loose on earth what's bound and loosed in heaven. Now, now, please hear me. He didn't mean they could make people Christians. The church doesn't have the authority to make people Christians. And the church doesn't have the authority to make the gospel. The gospel has already been given to us. And it is Jesus himself who makes people Christians. But based on their profession of the gospel and their faith in Jesus Christ, we have the authority to bind and loose on earth what's bound and loosed in heaven. Jesus meant the churches could make official judgments concerning the what and the who of the gospel on behalf of him. What is a right confession and who is a true confessor? And that's why we put so much emphasis on us understanding what the gospel is. It's important that we understand what the gospel is so that, number one, we can share it with others, and number two, so that we can hold on to it even in our own lives. If somebody comes to me and asks if they can become a a member of the church, we go through a process. 
we go through a process and there's some interviews and there's some classes, but we always ask the person about their confession of faith. We ask them to tell us about the day that they were saved or how they came to faith in Christ when they repented of their sins. And if they can share the testimony and they can um, articulate to us this confession in a biblical way, then we go to the next step. But we have this responsibility. We have this responsibility, not just to let all the, the, the goats among the sheep. The church is not our social club. The church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a responsibility to keep the church pure for the sake of our God who is holy, holy, holy. We represent this God, the King of kings. The church must live a life of people who are spirit-filled. The world around must see the church as people who love God, who are regenerate, who are filled with the Spirit, or who are led by the Spirit, not led by the, the flesh. And this is a responsibility of all church members, as we've, as we've shared with you. This is not just the elders' responsibility. Church members are responsible to receive and dismiss members. Church members are responsible to open the doors and close the doors. In the case of the church discipline that we're going to be looking at um, after church in our members' meeting, what we will do as a church will effectively testify that, that we no longer recognize this person as a citizen of Christ's kingdom. We are saying we don't believe him to be a Christian. We don't believe him to be a member of this body. And as a result, we will be putting him out of the church. Now, pastors don't wield this kind of authority on their own. And the whole church must make this decision out of obedience to Christ. So look at verse 19 there. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on heaven about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So when we represent our king properly, when we obey our, our master the way that we should, there's a promise here, isn't there? And this is the promise of his power. It's a promise of his power. When we pursue biblical peacemaking by by following these four steps, verse 18 and 19 tells us that what is done here is declared to be so in heaven. This is a promise of our Savior's power. Point three, let me move on to the conclusion here. We see another promise, the promise of His presence. And here's a verse that we've been looking at. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So we plainly see from the context of Matthew 18, verse 20, that this popular verse is not talking about God's special presence when there's a group of two or, or three people praying together. We need to be clear, God always hears our prayers. God always hears our prayers. Whether you're sitting alone in the, in the car or whether you're on your, your knees next to your bed, or whether you're joining the congregation at church, God always hears us our prayers. 
We see that in 1 Peter chapter 3. We see it in 1 John chapter 5, in, in Psalm chapter 66. So this verse, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them, is an affirmation of Jesus' deity. It's an affirmation of His, His presence among the apostles and the leaders in the church. And it's a promise for members who will seek unity in decision-making on matters of church discipline. But did you notice what comes before this passage? In verse, look at verse 12 in Matthew chapter 18. This is a well-beloved parable of the lost sheep. You've probably read it before. But let me read it again to remind you. Look at verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Why does Jesus tell this parable before this command to the church in verse 15 to 20? It's there for a reason, context, so that we wouldn't despise one of these, these little ones that have gone astray. Why might we be tempted to despise a fellow disciple? Well, for one, we might despise him because they've, they've hurt us. We might despise him because they've sinned against somebody else, and we don't trust them anymore. So there's that temptation. So verse 15 to 20 follows this parable. And one commentator I read this week beautifully unpacks this connection. He says, when someone sins against us, as verse 15 envisions, we are to imitate the shepherd of verses 10 to 14 and go after the one stray sheep. So church discipline is not, it's not a dirty chore that nobody wants to do. It shouldn't be like that. We have chores in, in my home and there are certain chores that some of my children enjoy doing and others that they don't enjoy doing. Church discipline shouldn't be a dirty chore. I know we don't like conflict, but this is necessary for the purity of the church and for the salvation of the lost. The Father did not leave us in our sin, but the Father, He came to us. And through the gospel, He, he rebuked our sin and He freely forgave us. He didn't just close His eyes and ignore the problem. And really, we should not leave others in their problems. We should not just close our eyes and expect miraculously things to change. We should not leave things to, to fester and ultimately for people to perish in their sin. But instead, we should search them out. We should chase them down. And we should do everything in our power to bring them back to God's grace and point them to God's forgiveness. When we confront a sinning brother or sister, we should have in one hand not only a, a rebuke, but also a blank check of forgiveness. And that may take time, but there needs to be a willingness. If the brother or sister repents, the check gets quickly written and handed over and and 
The problem has been solved. And praise God, the person has been restored to the Lord. But there's a process here. And I want you to see that, folks. The Lord understands that there are trust issues and we need to be discerning. But we can't just close our eyes and expect things to happen without us being intentionally engaged in this process. Without church discipline, at the end of the day, sin wins. Sin wins. It fractures our fellowship. It fractures families. It destroys. It sows bitterness. It, it sows division. And it chokes, really, the life out of the church of Jesus Christ. But God in the gospel doesn't let the sin win. He forgives its penalty. While we were condemned in our sins, folks, while we were running away from God, He sent His Son for us. And that's the gospel. The gospel breaks the power of sin. And He restores what, it's, what it has stolen and He, he heals what, what sin has broken. And Christian author Bobby Jameson, he, he writes, he says, to rebuke sin and extend forgiveness is to push back the darkness that threatens to extinguish the light of the gospel in someone's heart. It's to hack at the roots of evil which try to strangle the life out of the church. Can I read that again? That's very profound. To rebuke sin and extend forgiveness is to push back the darkness that threatens to extinguish the light of the gospel in someone's heart. We cannot ignore sin, folks. We cannot ignore sin and expect that person to love Christ. We have to help them see that God is holy and that they are sinners who have offended a holy God. We can't allow this sin to strangle the life out of this person that is straying. We can't let sin strangle the life out of the church. And church discipline is the gospel in action. Just as God doesn't leave us in our sin, but He, he comes to us in, in rebuking grace, so we also are to extend that, that grace to others. So despite the pain and the discomfort that church discipline brings, we shouldn't treat dealing with sin in the church as as a dirty chore. Instead, we should count it a privilege. We should count it a privilege to represent our Savior here on this earth, to imitate the Good Shepherd who, who left the 99 on, on the hillside to go after the one straying sheep, which is each of us. So church authority does not make or unmake a Christian. Please Hear me clearly. Jesus alone is the final judge at the end of the day. But still, church authority is what allows for the church on earth to become visible, to go public. It's how a group of, of individual Christians, they speak together in unity to the world around us that is watching, that is watching this group of Identified people represent Jesus Christ. And what we're saying is here, we are. We are a, are a new people. We are a new race. We represent Jesus. 
And we have good news for you. We have good news for you. Now, for 18 months during COVID, New Life Church, we were unable to, to gather together even on the Lord's Day. And we still ministered the, the word virtually online, but, but we lacked what Matthew 18, 20 promises. We lacked the promise of God's presence amongst us. We learned that this remote, virtual, disembodied fellowship wasn't enough. I mean, we may do with it, but, but hopefully it caused us to value all the more these close, real, personal relationships that we experience when we gather together. These gatherings that are filled with God's presence and filled with His power. We have learned from verse 20 today, and I think this is an important application, that the Lord Jesus promises His presence, He promises His power at the gathering of His people. We are still the church during the week as we are scattered, but we are only the church during the week because we gather on the Lord's day. Okay? We gather on the Lord's day. So gathering isn't just a privilege. Gathering is a command for our good. Gathering creates a, a solemn responsibility that we are willing to love others the way that Christ had loved us. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 tells us, Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. God has established His local church for His glory, but also for our joy, folks. And when we don't make gathering a priority, we are the ones who shoot ourselves in the foot. We are the ones who don't experience the special presence and power of the Lord. You know, someone once said to me that they were not committed to becoming a church member and coming to church on the Lord's Day because they wanted to spend their time with non-Christians. They wanted to evangelize the non-Christians, and they felt church was just all full of Christians. They wanted to be outside of the church. They said, why party on the lifeboat while others are drowning? And they also argued that fewer and fewer of non-Christians even come into the, the church. And that's why they didn't want to minister here. They wanted to minister outside. Now, I love this man's zeal for the lost. But I told him that this reasoning was, it was short-sighted and it was self-defeating. How will the congregation be equipped? How will the congregation be motivated to, to reach the lost without a weekly gathering, without us anticipating weekly God's glory together, without us encouraging each other to sing His praises, to remember His praises, to remember His goodness? I mean, that last song we just sang, what a blessing, wasn't it? What a blessing. That encouraged my soul. How are we to be encouraged if we don't gather together? How will all people know that we are Jesus' disciples if our love for the lost is greater than our, our love for one another and our love for Jesus Christ? And the Lord Jesus promises His protection and He promises His power and He promises His 
presence at the gathering of His people. And let's do all that we can to represent Jesus well. Let's do all that we can to make the invisible kingdom of God visible for God's glory and for our joy. Father, we do thank you for your word today. And I'm sure, Lord, there is so much more that I could have said about this passage. But I pray, Lord, that you would take your word and that you, your spirit would help us to apply this to our own personal lives. Lord, that we would see the need we have to be gathering together more frequently and more faithfully. Lord, that we would not grow weary in this, in this obligation, in this privilege. Lord, that we would represent you well as we gather together. Lord, that we would even love each other well as we gather together, Lord. Even specifically as we looked at this issue of church discipline that we would love each other, that we would be intentional, that we would be engaged, that we will be developing relationships with each other so that it would be easier for us to approach people and to confront the, the sin or, or help the person with this, with this speck in their eye. And Father, we pray for your help that we wouldn't just be like the hypocrites and go about our business as if you don't exist, as if this is not important that we would disobey you, but that we would, Lord, be, be answering, that we'll be answerable to each other. Lord, that we would be willing to engage with each other. And Lord, that we would be honest with each other. So Lord, we, as Pedro prayed, Lord, there are many people hurting in our church. And we need to come alongside each other and minister to each other and help the body. Lord, we need people to help us. So, Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would take this admonition today seriously and that we would grow in unity and that we would grow in love and that we would represent you well to the world around us that is watching and people would see Christ and they would come to him. So, Lord, we pray that you would use us as a church and that you would be exalted amongst us. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.